And thanks so much for joining us today on a frank conversation. Oh, we are discussing a topic that is impacting a lot of women across the map out there. We're talking about fibroids. And here to help me out today is Tanique Gray. She uh, runs White Dress Project. It's been going since 2015. She's going to share her personal story. And also to help us out with this, gynecological surgeon, Dr. Soy Eni Hawkins. How are we doing today, ladies? Awesome. Good. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I want to get educated on this. And I know that this is probably something that's impacting a lot of folks out there who would love to learn more about it. And they would love other people around them to know more about it. Uh, this is something that was ailing you for some time there, Tanika. Yes, absolutely. I have had symptoms of uterine fibroids probably since I was about um, 14 or 15, always with um, heavy bleeding, abdominal pain, bloating. Um, so I never wore any white. So this is something that is near and dear to me because it has been my own personal experience um, all through high school, all through college. And, and still, as I'm sitting here, you know, talking with you today, I still have fibroids. So it's an ongoing struggle. So the white dress is kind of like, you know what, I'm going to do this regardless of the circumstances I'm facing. Yes, absolutely. We use the white dress as a symbol of hope, really, because when you have fibroids, you usually don't feel comfortable wearing white. And I must add this caveat because Dr. Hawkins is here and I know it's the right thing to do, which is not every woman that has fibroids has symptomatic fibroids. So not every woman will experience the heavy bleeding, the bloating, all of that. Um, but for many women, um, you know, the idea of not wearing white resonates with them so much because of the heavy bleeding and the bloating and the pain. So we use the white dress as a symbol of hope to say that we will find a cure for fibroids. We will dedicate the, the ample amount of research dollars that it takes to figure out why Black women are disproportionately impacted, why fibroids grow in the first place, and really what we can do to just amp up the research and the conversation around this reproductive health issue. You said 14 is when you started noticing this. Yes, 14 for me. And I think the studies show, and Dr. Hawkins can speak to this more, but that they usually start to appear during your reproductive years. So I would categorize that after, you know, maybe 20 years old. But we're hearing many stories of, um, of people from our community who are talking about having um, these symptoms much earlier, like I did. Dr. Soy Eni Hawkins here. I know you can speak to this as you're dealing with these, these symptoms of your patients on a daily basis. I can only imagine how daunting that must be for uh, a young girl, a young teenager trying to figure out life. And now she's trying to figure out her body. And now she's trying to figure out, is there something wrong with me? How do you make sense of this for some of your younger patients? Yeah, it's interesting because Tanika's um, story you would think is quite unique. Usually we don't end up being able to diagnose most women with fibroids until they're in their 20s or even 30s. However, it may be a component of just missing the diagnosis in our younger patients. Why? Because we're not having the conversations in our families about things that make us suffer during menstruation. So a lot of women, when they're teenagers like Tanika, 
don't have, unfortunately, the luxury of a wonderful mother that was able to kind of cater to her, listen to her and say, let's investigate what's going on. So we're missing the diagnosis in a lot of these young women. So it's rare that I have teenagers that come in with fibroids, but they do come in with concerns. They come in with heavy bleeding and I'm having pain and um, we're not necessarily investigating that. But now with these conversations, we're starting to say, oh, well, let's look a little deeper as to why that's happening in these young women. Now, doctor, you said they don't have the luxury. That's heartbreaking. They don't have the luxury of having a conversation about this. What do you mean about that? It's, it's still so taboo to talk about a menstrual cycle right? It's still so taboo to talk about almost anything that's below the waist. So um, I think for many young women, the conversation of how can I get help or what might be wrong with me is missed by not starting that at home. And so when they get to the doctor, even if they even get to the doctor, even if they even get to me to have the conversation, it's usually long after they've suffered for several years. So I would actually still consider it a luxury. We're not talking about it enough in the communities. And I want us to talk about it more at home. And look at this. Here I am, sandwiched between the two of you, like, what's up? Let's talk about this. Just yeah. pat myself on the back via Zoom. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, though, we do need to uh, have more folks out there discussing these issues um, that are that are taking place, as you say, below the belt, because it's it's a real thing. How real is it? Well, when we're talking about percentages of people impacted by this, it's more than many people may actually realize. Yeah, 70% of women, period, point blank, 80% of African-American women. So, I mean, literally eight out of 10 of your girlfriends in the room probably have fibroids. If they're suffering or not, that's different. Not everyone suffers, just like Tanika said, but it usually makes some type of impact in their life. Sometimes they're silently suffering. Things like infertility may not necessarily even be known in the early stages until they're trying to get pregnant. That's to me, silent suffering. Tanika, did you feel like your situation was unique? Did you feel like maybe you were the only one because this is taboo in many circles? Well, I knew that I wasn't the only one because I had a mother who was very open with me about fibroids and talked to me about, you know, how she struggled. She talked to me about her hysterectomy. But even though I had that, you know, background knowledge, I had that parental conversation, even when I was talking about it with my girlfriends, it was still very taboo, very stigmatized, very embarrassing. Like it was just something we didn't do. So while I knew that I wasn't the only one suffering, I still felt very lonely. And I still felt that I couldn't speak about it publicly or people would, you know, shame me or I wouldn't, you know, get a job or, you know, just all the things you think about as, as a young woman. And because of that, I just didn't want to talk about it. I, I, I just would avoid social situations or, you know, I would, I would, you know, break dates all the time. So while I knew, had it in the back of my head that I cannot be the only one going through this, I know that my mother went through it. I've heard people in my family, you know, have the surgery, which is, which is how we refer to it in, in our household, just the surgery. So while I knew that, it was still very um, lonely and um, still a taboo topic. So that's what we want to eliminate. 
um, is to encourage women that no, you do not have to suffer in silence. You need to be your own best health advocate. And talking about these reproductive health issues really just brings it to the forefront because we're all, you know, there's so many of us who are suffering with it anyway. So we need to be bold about talking about the ailments that we're having so that we can really get some real research dollars and really put context around how this is impacting our life, especially our quality of life. Well, you said your mother had it. So this is the heirloom no one wants. Is there anything that, that folks can do, Dr. Eni Hawkins, to get out in front of this? Is there anything that we can do as a preventative measure? Yeah, so there's a lot of current research going into fibroids. Why it is that we suffer the way that we do? Why does it disproportionately affect Black women? What kind of preventive measures may there be? How does lifestyle impact it? Um, and for a lot of women, that's kind of where it starts because it feels like that's the only thing that they really can do to help their situation. We as women are all born with the cells to create fibroids. And yes, they are benign tumors, but we've already talked about the tremendous impact it can have on um, just our daily function and living, our productivity, our jobs, our you know relationships with others. And so more research needs to go into answering that exact question that you're asking. The lifestyle component is important. It's very, very, very important. What we put and consume, what we you know into our bodies, the things that we put on our skin, the stress that we endure, all of these things affect us on a cellular level all throughout our body. And we certainly know and have been, been able to make the connection um, to all of those components and fibroids. So the best that most women can do is control those factors. You know, how many times we talk about cutting stress out of our lives? <laughs> we talked about the psychological, um, I guess, side effects, the symptoms that one is, is, is dealing with. But as it pertains to long-term dreams, right? Because when you're going through this, I, I, I can only imagine um, what that may feel like. But as we think long-term, and we're talking about pain that's occurring below the belt, there must be some concern about childbirth. Absolutely. How, how, were you, how were you reckoning with that, Tanika? How, how did that impact your, your thought process? Yeah, it, it, I'm so glad you asked that question, Frank, because there are so many women who are dealing with fibroids and also dealing with infertility, like myself. Um, and it, it does um, play on your mental health greatly. Um, I have gone through three rounds of IVF, about to start another one. And it, it really is troubling because when you think of how fibroids are categorized as benign tumors, most times, you know, I think it's only 1% that come back um, malignant. But when you think about these benign tumors, and I think about, you know, my life and how they have impacted my life, you know, it really is burdensome. And it really, when I think about my desire from I was a young girl, even before wanting to be married, I've always wanted to be a mother. So knowing that because of my multiple surgeries, um, you know, because of the way these things occur in my body, it has impacted, you know, my ability to have a child. And I, I, I say all that to just be frank about what it has done to my life, but I am not hopeless. And if I can impart anything on, on your viewers is that 
we have to keep the hope going, right? So the white dress behind me is, is my hope daily. The community members that I meet and who share their stories with me and allow me to understand that I'm not alone, you know, is the impetus that we need to continue this journey. So I know that I'm not alone. I, and I want to impart to anyone that they are not alone either. So while it is a long journey, I'm still going through it all while trying to run an organization and encourage women to share their stories. Um, I'm not hopeless and I'm, I'm, I know that in some capacity, I will be a mother, but thank you so much for asking that because it is definitely a thread in the story that needs to be talked about more. Even, you know, those women who aren't necessarily on a childbearing track or don't necessarily want to be mothers, there's something to be said about the psychological impact that uterine fibroids can have when you are bleeding for multiple days in a row or multiple, multiple months in a row. So thinking about what that mental health component is, is vital to this conversation. There's clearly a direct connection um, psychologically to one's body. And there has to come a time, I would imagine, I know as a man, when certain things don't work properly, some men lean toward, well, maybe this makes me less of a man, or maybe this makes me more of a man, none of which is true. Um, does that happen um, with the women that you've talked to who have shared their stories? Did they feel like less of a woman because they were dealing with this physically? Absolutely. I, I still battle with that. I still battle with the notions of, you know, the definitions that we have of, of what a successful woman looks like. You know, a successful woman I was taught is a wife, is a mother, is a career woman. And I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with all of those, but I'm just being transparent about what I was taught. So many times we hear from our community members that you feel like your body is turning against you. You feel like, what did I do? What did I do in my past life? What did I do in primary school, in high school, that this is my journey? And it, it is often disheartening um, because, you know, obviously we try to encourage women to say that, no, there's nothing that you did not do. But when we have something like fibroids that does not have the research, the full research, Dr. Hawkins talked about how we need more research. So when you have something where we can't get definitive answers, um, I'll just share briefly that, you know, during my IVF experiences, um, there has been no clear reason why it hasn't necessarily worked, right? There has just been categorized as a uterine a factor. So when you think of those like kind of just in the sky, I'll call them answers and, and not really a clinical definition and reason, it does bother you. And it does make you feel like, what have I done? Why is my body doing this to me? And we hear that so many times from our community and, and again, speaks to the mental health component and the mental health impact. Doc, what do you make of that? I agree 110%. Some of the most disheartening conversations that I have with patients is related to other relationships, how they're perceived, um, even in the workplace. 
um, how their productivity is perceived because they might have to miss a day or two of work every single month because of the impact of their fibroids. So it becomes a matter of, I can't meet my career goals. I can't advance the way I want to advance. I can't be seen on level and on par as some of even my male counterparts because of how these fibroids are impacting me. And then even at home, I can't make it to my son's soccer game. So my patients oftentimes will share how they feel as if um, one, their fibroids is a barrier to them just being fulfilled in their day-to-day -day life. And then also the other side of it, as you have already mentioned, that they feel somewhat that they're letting their communities or environment around them down. Um, so it's important that, that we have communities where we can uplift each other, like the White Dress Project, where we're actually sharing these common impacts and how we're dealing with them. May it be therapy or may it be um, exercise or outlets into how we can, you know, get back to feeling well about our bodies beyond our fibroids and living, to, finding out how to live gracefully with them. Doctor, and I'm going to ask you the same question, Tanika, but doctor, what do you want men to know? What, what is it that you want men to know? Because Tanika, um, as we spoke over the phone about this wonderful project that you've got going with the White Dress Project, you said something that stood out to me and I found most profound. And I also felt saddened by it. You thanked me for my interest. And, and I... I firmly believe in what Dr. King said to paraphrase, we're all connected. So, you know, I can't become what I ought to be until you become what you ought to be and vice versa. So I, I never thought that I was worthy of, of, of a thank you, but I'm concerned because I'm not a woman, but I, I have a wife, I have two daughters, I have a mom, I have a grandmother, um, I have aunts. I have coworkers and I've got a lot of ladies I've seen on my, my Facebook feed and Twitter feed talk about, you know, needing treatment for their fibroids. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't show uh, concern because, you know, I, I got love for, for, for you and, and your circumstances as well. What is it that you all would like men to, to know? And what would you like for men? Yeah, I would love men to know that they do have a place in the conversation for all the reasons that you just listed. The way we're impacted is indirectly the way that they're impacted as well. Um, my husband took part in my personal journey with fibroids and I honestly at the beginning shut him out and I learned how valid his um, point of view and his part to play in that journey for me was on the high, on the on the back side I appreciate it more now after I've gone through it um, and understood what his struggle was with it right. so men need to know that they have a part in the conversation that their their voice and how they feel about it and how it impacts them um, is important because they are our source of support most of the time and Tanika Absolutely. what do you want what what do you what do the dudes need to know out here what, what what we need to do get us together <laughs> well, Frank, first of all, we need to replicate you <laughs> and your <laughs> thoughts about this because I do thank you because um, not a lot of times do we find that men have the comfort level to talk about this. You know, their intentions may be good, um, but but it's it's just uncomfortable. So I applaud you for wanting to deal with this because you're right. Every 
man has a mother, right? And grandmother, women around him. So it's important that they know, like Dr. Hawkins said, that they have a voice in the conversation. I also want men to know that they can do their research as well to support their partners. Um, it, you know, it should not always be on your partner to explain everything that is going on. So if my, you know, if I were a man and my wife didn't, you know, want to have sex, you know, often. Or there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to it, right? <laughs> but but sex is something that is impacted right. with fibroids, right? Because it can be painful. So if that were going on, you know, instead of running to certain judgments that men may make, you know, researching, talking, conversing about it so that there's an understanding of what's going on. Because once you start to explain um, how fibroids are affecting your quality of life, there is a great level of empathy that happens with men and women, right? So explaining that and also guys, just do your research so that every part of it, we don't have to point out. Um, but ladies, we also need to, to share as well. And I, I wanna reiterate that when you're dating, this is even you know so important. Before I got married, I would never Did that spend touch a night your soul, in doctor. I mean, because <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Like when you're dating, I never would spend the night at a guy's house, and I'm thankful that I, I married the man I was supposed to marry. But just thinking about all the things that you can go through when you're dating with fibroids, because you just you, sometimes you just don't know what your body is going to do. The accidents. You don't want to deal with the embarrassment. So guys, you know, research, support the ladies and, you know, everything is not PMS, right? Um, but do your research and, and support and use your voice to, to champion um, women who are going through this. Let me get this straight. You, you want guys to do the research, but guys, don't be like, yeah, you know, girl, I was Googling about you. and uh... <laughs> That's not the way to handle it, right? Not that way. Not that way. Not as game. Let's not use it as game, please. Oh, okay. All right. Let me <laughs> check that off the list. All right. Um, what what is the procedure that is done to to remove fibroids? How yeah. does that work? What what does that entail? Absolutely. So we have several procedures now that are out there. Technology is wonderful, right? We made many advancements over the outpatient, inpatient. Uh, so we have inpatient and outpatient now. So I'm a minimally invasive surgeon, meaning that I do a lot of laparoscopic and hysteroscopic procedures. So I do procedures now where sometimes I don't even need to make an incision, period. And so that's how we're able to have those options for outpatient surgeries really depends on the fibroids, their location, um, what the goals of the patient are, obviously, and then also what they are able to do in the hand, what the doctor is able to do. Are they capable of doing some of these procedures? The procedure you spoke of specifically to remove the fibroid is called a myomectomy, and it can be done in all of the ways that I stated. It can be done cervically with no incisions. If the fibroids are in a cavity, it can be done laparoscopically. If the uterus is not too large, that's my favorite way to do it. Or it can be done through an incision similar to like a C-section or a bikini cut um, to remove the fibroids. And patients do get a great deal of relief usually with that 
procedure, but there are many, many more. Now we can shrink them. We can stop the blood flow to them um, with interventional radiology. Um, and for some women, um, they do end up having their uterus removed after, after they're done with childbearing prayerfully um, because fibroids unfortunately can grow back. And, and this, does this prevent some women from, from having children? Yeah, so, I, and that's why I said it the way I said it. I will always be a champion of giving women options. Tanika knows how dear that is to my heart and how important it is so that we can um, allow women to continue their fertility journey, whatever that might look like. Um, and there are many women who don't even have a desire for fertility, but they have a desire to keep their uterus, to keep their womb. And so being able to give women access to more options, not just the hysterectomy, is how we're starting to kind of bridge that gap or fill that hole um, to allow women to want to get their fibroids taken care of. They don't feel like I have no choice but to give up my fertility. Now we have other options. When you talk about treatment, can you compare that with uh, an ailment that we can kind of put, you know, apples to apples? Um, because I know that you all were saying that there are far fewer treatments available uh, or research information available regarding fibroids. Is there another ailment out there that we could compare it to where we say, this is where we are with fibroids and this is where we want to get? Of course, obviously, yeah. the more information, the better, but... <laughs> of course. And you know what? That, that's a great question. I want to make sure that I uh, really let that question kind of sit in me for a while after this conversation is over, because for so many years, we've discussed how we want more when it comes to fibroids. No, it's not going to kill you. It's not a cancer. We're not, you know, there are these big foundations, big walks, big to do about cancers, which is, you know, rightfully needed. But imagine how much more we could get out of the impact that we make on how fibroids is affecting the world. It's a pandemic. The numbers far outweigh most cancers um, in the women that not only have fibroids, but are suffering with fibroids. But I can't really compare it to cancer now, can I? You know what I mean? It's not a, it's not an, a, a ruptured appendix where they're rushing you into surgery. Most women are taking years, two, three, five, 10 years sometimes before they'll even have the conversation with their doctor to say, what are my surgical options? So I don't know if I can compare it to anything else out there. You know what I mean? And, and unfortunately, that is a part of the barrier that we've had with actually making a resounding impact on fibroids and, and fibroid treatment and management. I think that that sums it up perfectly because you know it's it's not comparable, right? So, um, but it is a public health issue, though. And I know that Dr. Hawkins will agree with me with that. It is a public health issue, and just because it is not necessarily comparable to cancer, I will say that my seven blood transfusions, <laughs> my two myomectomies, my two hysteroscopic procedures have impacted my life greatly. So I do wanna you know, make that point as well, that it, we still have a public health issue here. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad, so after, after um, these procedures, what is recovery like? How, how long is that process? So it depends on the procedure. If the fibroid is able to be removed or treated hysteroscopically, then that is just a couple of days. And I mean, it's quite impactful how much they can get an improvement in their heavy bleeding. If they have to have a laparoscopic procedure, it might be two or three weeks. Or if they have UFE, it might be just one or two weeks. 
um, if they have to have an open abdominal procedure with that C-section like incision, that usually looks like more four to six weeks of recovery before they're able to get back to work and just normal lifestyle. I can hear the typing and the pencils going right now. The significant <laughs> others are taking note on recovery time. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> so how can folks get involved with the, the White Dress Project, Tanika? Yes, we, we'd love for people to get involved. We are a nonprofit organization and really, you know, want to raise the conversation as we've done across the country so that more women understand that they should not suffer in silence with uterine fibroids. So we are on all social media platforms, Instagram at We Can Wear White, Twitter, We Can underscore Wear White, on Facebook, The White Dress Project, and go to whitedressproject.org. We have a plethora of information on our website just about support, how you can find a doctor like Dr. Hawkins. She's one of our advisory council members. So we're, we're so proud to have her. Um, but you can find other doctors like her in other parts of the country and just get support. So really come to our website, interact with us on social media, and we'd be happy to welcome you into our community. All right, doctor, is there any parting shot that you'd like to offer up to to folks out there as they know they don't have to suffer in silence and they, they don't have to suffer solo. In fact, they may not have to suffer at all. And, and for those significant others, we got some information for you too, as we put a bow on this. Absolutely. And I would say to Tanika, I think you said it at least three or four times in this conversation, women be your best advocate, be your best health advocate. Really, when you go to these doctors, share what's going on with you. Make sure that you're heard and listened to. Make sure that you're armed with that research and understanding of what your options might be and be ready to have a frank and open discussion about it um, and engage, engage in these communities because it can be a real, real source of support for you. Be frank all the time. Thank you so much, ladies, for... Uh... <laughs> You see what I did there? I've got the I've got the corny puns for days. Thank you so much for informing me and um, being so honest about your experiences. Um, so for Tanika Gray with the White Dress Project, thank you so much. You all go out there and check that out. And Dr. Enie Hawkins, thank you so much for that information. And to all of you who checked us out today, until next time, have a good one.